This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the bowtie bandit of blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. In this episode, we'll provide you an update on the COVID-19 pandemic and discuss the analytical performance of these available diagnostic tests that we're having. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Matt Binneker, the Director of Clinical Virology and Vice Chair of Practice at the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Binneker. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Kreuter. Glad to be here. Oh, wonderful. So can you maybe start off and give us kind of a status update on where we are in this COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. So a lot has changed just over the last few weeks. Um, it was just about three weeks ago that we moved from COVID-19 being considered an epidemic to the World Health Organization considering this a pandemic. So we now have about 1.5 million confirmed cases worldwide. And there's about 400,000 confirmed cases here in the United States. And unfortunately, that's the largest number of confirmed cases uh, per country uh, worldwide. And in terms of the global deaths related to COVID-19, we're sitting at about 84,000 deaths due to COVID-19. So this has definitely uh, expanded in terms of its uh, scope affected a lot more areas of the world and affected many more people than we had hoped. But now that we have more testing being performed, uh, hopefully we'll be able to curb the spread and, and slow this down. Yeah, I want to get into and dive into the testing, but just to hit pause for a second, when you talk about it has gone from an epidemic to a pandemic, uh, maybe really to highlight for our uh, listeners uh, who are learners out there, uh, What's the difference between that designation of epidemic to pandemic? Is this just the size is bigger? Yeah, so an epidemic really is a spread of an infectious disease within a, a geographic region affecting tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And when we start to see spread of disease to most countries in the world, involving millions of individuals. That's really when it crosses over a threshold from an epidemic into a pandemic. So I think the World Health Organization rightfully has categorized this as a pandemic because it's affecting almost 185 different countries worldwide. And as I mentioned earlier, we've surpassed the 1 million confirmed cases, uh, now approaching 1.5 million cases uh, confirmed across uh, the globe. Wow. And so now to dive into, I think, the very uh, wicked hot topic right now is laboratory testing. I mean, there's been a couple of tests uh, that I think that we've been aware of, uh, talked about in the media. I know that you have led a, a team here at Mayo that has developed a, a test for uh, the novel uh, COVID-19. Uh, can you kind of help us get our heads around this, kind of summarize uh, these different tests that are uh, potentially orderables? Absolutely. So the majority of the tests that have been performed to date are what we call molecular tests. So they're 
um, amplifying up a region of the viral genome. So it uses a technique called polymerase chain reaction or PCR. The CDC was the first group to basically develop a molecular test for SARS-CoV-2. And that was performed at the CDC and some state health labs. As the pandemic uh, grew in number, we saw the, an increased need to perform testing at the front line. So in clinical laboratories and reference laboratories. And so those um, clinical labs and reference labs were able to bring up similar PCR-based tests. Uh, and so we're seeing the number of those PCR tests increase across the country. And again, those assays are being able to uh, detect the virus in patients' clinical samples like a nasal swab or a nasopharyngeal swab. And those are best to diagnose active disease with COVID-19. Most recently, we've seen um, some labs, including ours at Mayo Clinic, bring up serologic tests. So the serology tests are measuring something different. They're measuring what are called antibodies, which are developed in response to an infection. So they're really um, an indicator of whether someone has been exposed to the virus or not. And they're not such a good test for diagnosing acute disease, but basically asking the question, was this person exposed at some point in time to SARS-CoV-2? And the serology test will be important from a number of different angles. One will be, it will, the serology test will give us a better appreciation for how many people in the population actually were exposed to SARS-CoV-2, because not everyone uh, becomes symptomatic or becomes so ill that they need to be seen by a physician. And then the other key feature of serology is it will identify people who have antibodies and what we're seeing now is that there are some protocols being developed where we can take blood from individuals who have been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 and use that plasma, it's called convalescent plasma, to treat people who are currently very ill with COVID-19. And so that's an exciting development in the therapeutic side. I see, so there's really, I like how you've couched um, the differences between these uh, two different methodologies of your molecular tests, you're going for diagnosis, and with your serological test, you're saying you're really going for some of that epidemiology uh, of you know how many uh, people in our community have been exposed, as well as therapeutically for who could potentially be donating this convalescent plasma that could be used to treat patients that are sick. Uh, yep. yep, that's absolutely right. So I've been seeing, and I'm sure many of our listeners have been seeing, uh, you know, in the news, uh, a lot of speculation, um, uh, you know, based on past experiences about low sensitivity of um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, diagnostic uh, testing. And I know I've gotten uh, calls on this uh, from my clinicians, um, and I'm sure you have as well. Lots of calls, yep. Could you kind of speak to that and help us kind of understand this from the lab medicine uh, professional's point of view? Yeah, no, it's a really important topic, and we've been getting a lot of questions from physicians and patients about uh, the sensitivity of the PCR-based tests. Uh, the, the quick response is we don't fully 
know the clinical sensitivity of the SARS-CoV-2 PCR test yet. In other words, if there were 100 patients with COVID-19, will the PCR tests be positive in 60 out of those 100, in 70, in 80, or 90 out of those 100? We don't really know yet. The, the tests were brought up in a way that uh, in the lab, we performed what's called an analytical validation. We basically use control material or positive patient material to determine what we call the limit of detection. But we haven't had time yet to do those broad uh, population-based studies to answer that question of in patients that we know have COVID-19, how many times does the PCR pick it up? Um, what we are learning from some publications is that it really not only depends on the test itself, but also when the patient presents for the test to be performed. In other words, if a patient shows up with a day or two of symptoms, it's likely that the test is going to have a higher probability of being positive because if we're sampling the upper airway, like a nasopharyngeal swab or a nasal swab, the virus is present in the upper respiratory tract in the early stages of, of the disease. So during the first three to five days, the virus is in the upper respiratory tract. But if a patient has been sick for maybe a week and has lower respiratory symptoms, you know, early pneumonia, cough, the virus actually moves from the upper, upper airway to the lower airway. And so if the patient has a upper airway sample like a nasal swab collected when they're further along in the disease, the test is much less likely to be positive. Not necessarily saying that the test is bad, it's just that the virus isn't present in the upper airway during the later stages of the disease. So it really depends on three factors. Of course, the test itself, when the patient is presenting to have the sample collected, and then also the quality of the sample that's being collected. Really need you know the nursing staff and physicians when they are getting a nasopharyngeal swab to collect a good quality sample. If a patient is hospitalized and they're having lower respiratory illness, we need to get a good sputum sample and maybe even the best sample is a bronchoalveolar lavage where they actually go into the, the lungs and aspirate some of the fluid from the lungs. Um, those are some of the, the highest quality samples for recovery. Really like how you're highlighting here, um, you know, keeping our wits about us about, you know, taking a good clinical history and understanding where we think the patient is because we can really target then what's going to be the optimal way to test uh, our patient. Um, kind of on that, uh, we've been hearing a lot about uh, rapid tests, kind of these point of care, uh, few minute tests for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, I was wondering if you could kind of help us understand uh, those and how do they fit what, what, with what we've discussed so far? Yeah, absolutely. The majority of the testing that's been done for COVID so far to date are not what we call a rapid test. They usually take somewhere between four hours and eight hours once the sample hits the laboratory. So that doesn't factor in getting the sample from a clinic or a hospital to the testing laboratory. So we've been typically saying we can get results reported out in less than 24 hours, which is uh, pretty good. Now, obviously, we'd like to get those results back quicker. And there are a few commercially available test options now that can provide quicker results. 
There's one from a company called Abbott um, that is called an ID now assay. And that's what you've heard on the news is the, the five minute test. So that is a, a rapid kind of point of care assay. Um, the challenge there is the, the number of tests and reagents for that assay is fairly limited. And those uh, reagents have been dedicated more to the areas in the country where we're seeing very large numbers of COVID cases and, and, and high mortality rates as well. So it's not broadly um, uh, utilized across the country. There are some other um, test options that can give results in the one to two hour time frame. But in a similar fashion, the availability of those rapid test reagents and equipment's been fairly limited. So there are just really select regions in the country that have access to those rapid tests. So let me know, let me paraphrase and just let me know if I'm getting this right. So uh, generally speaking, if I'm looking to see, uh, do I have SARS-CoV-2, I, I should probably get their standard uh, PCR um, uh, diagnostic assay, which has a longer turnaround time. Yep. Uh, but for these point of cares should, because they don't have the same large capacity that your test does, that that should really be limited to, uh, you know, very specific patients where decisions have to be made uh, emergently. Um, is that what we're saying that context is that's, those are the subset that should get this rapid test? Yeah, I think that's where we're at right now is because we don't have unlimited supplies of the tests that provide really short turnaround time. What the, the country's trying to do is determine what are the areas that really need those quick tests the most. And hopefully over the course of the next several months, as the companies are able to build up their amount of supplies and reagents, we'll be able to see those quicker tests more broadly distributed across the United States. Because I think in many hospitals and clinics, having the results in an hour would be preferable to getting the results back in 15 hours. Uh, patients that are seen in emergency departments, uh, hospitalized patients in the ICU, it would be great to be able to provide those results to the physicians managing those patients uh, in an hour or so so that they can make those important management decisions. I really want to point out for our listeners uh, who are learners out there, you know, just how much we are kind of learning uh, as this is going on. This is really a learning experience, uh, very rapidly translating into implementation. Uh, so Dr. Binnaker, on that note, then, can you kind of take us through or, you know, what have been some maybe lessons learned or, you know, unexpected challenges for our laboratory professionals that are listening to this podcast? Yeah, well, there have definitely not been a shortage of lessons learned. Um, every day presents a new challenge. Every day presents something that we have to be flexible to and adapt to. Uh, and that's largely in part because we're learning so much about this virus on a day-to-day -day basis that we have to adjust our approach and our protocols. Uh, from the lab side, I'd say one of the biggest um, unexpected challenges that we've encountered is just the supply chain challenges. In other words, uh, you can bring up a test and you can use that to diagnose a patient with COVID. But if we run into shortages of critical supplies to get that test performed, 
um, that makes it a, a problem. And we've experienced those shortages all along the testing pathway from the actual swabs that are used to collect a patient sample. Those have been in short supply to the tubes of media that the swab goes into to get the swab from the collection site to the lab. There's been significant shortages in that transport media. And then once the sample hits our laboratory, we've experienced uh, limitations with the test reagents themselves, with the plastics and the consumables that go on the equipment. The issue is that labs all across the world are trying to perform this testing. So it's putting a real burden on the suppliers of all of their required components. Everyone's scrambling to try to figure out how we can get their required supplies to get the testing done. So it's just a, a supply and demand issue right now. Um, and that was, I think, continues to be one of the biggest unexpected hurdles and challenges that we're facing. Wow. Uh you know, that makes me, you know, I've, I've had you on this podcast before, and I think I'm going to have to ask you to come back, uh, you know, in the future uh, to kind of circle back around, because I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, I know all of us in laboratory medicine have dealt with critical supply issues and vetted uh, things out, just kind of going through these models about what what is essential for our work. And it'll be interesting to kind of follow up with you in the future to see how this experience of meeting the challenges of SARS-CoV-2 actually change how we do that planning and how we do that vetting out in the future. Yeah, no, we're definitely learning things today that hopefully will prepare us for uh, future pandemics. I mean, I think one thing that we've learned over the last 10 or 15 years is this, not, this is not going to be the last time we see an infectious disease outbreak, hopefully not for a long time, uh, that we'll see one again at, at this scale, but we need to be prepared to respond. And so we're gonna take the, the lessons learned from this and prepare ourselves uh, to respond better in the future. So on that lessons learned uh, note that you've just kind of put out there, uh, a lot of what we've been talking about is just so pertinent for physicians that are ordering these tests, uh, us laboratory professionals that are doing the work to make these things available, uh, make these uh, results uh, happen. I was wondering if we could just kind of hit pause now and think about our learners that are kind of uh, working alongside of us uh, who have, uh, in, some, in some situations, maybe have taken a little bit of a back seat, uh, understandably so, because of the patient, uh, the needs of the patient coming first. I was wondering if you could maybe um, reflect with our audience about what are some lessons learned out of this experience that you really want uh, our learners to to be thinking about and taking away from this experience. Yeah, I know it's a great question. Um, definitely thought a lot about it. And I think one thing that I would really try to emphasize is that even the world experts in infectious diseases uh, virology, laboratory management, um, they are uh, humbled during an experience like this and, and we've realized that we need to lean on each other uh, to really tap into the collective expertise and wisdom to try to come up with the right approach. 
in a situation like COVID where we don't know much about the virus, we don't know much about the disease, and we're learning so much on a daily basis, we have to lean on each other. We have to bounce ideas off of each other. Um, and the most important thing is we have to be able to be flexible and adapt and be willing to, to change uh, based on incoming information. Uh, we may come up with a, a protocol or approach to test and treat a patient that sounds uh, really great and it makes a lot of sense based on the available data, but what we're learning is that those, uh, the information can change so quickly that we need to be able to uh, take in the new data and the new information and be able to adapt our approach based on that incoming information. So it's not just for our students and residents and fellows, even for uh, those who are considered experts across the world. This is a constantly evolving uh, issue and we're all learners during this uh, pandemic. Absolutely. I, uh, it uh, brings to mind um, actually one of the things that I've uh, working with you on our clinical practice committee and here at Mayo Clinic, I've always been impressed with your uh, role modeling for junior faculty for like myself what does servant leadership look like? And I think some of these elements of what you've highlighted about humility and, and learning together and uh, collaborative um, approaches to change management, um, it just really brings this whole episode home for me and, and I hope for our learners too. Great, yeah, the only way we're gonna get through this is by working together. So uh, we just gotta continue to, to push that message that we need everybody's you know, collective wisdom and everybody's help uh, for us to be able to get through this on the other side. And I, I think that we definitely will. And the whole healthcare system is gonna come out, I think, uh, better for it because of all the lessons learned during this process but it's challenging along the way. But uh, I've seen so many great things happen with teams and individuals working together and people willing to step up. It's really been, a, in some ways, a very positive experience to see people willing to uh, help out in any way they can. Well, on this optimistic note, I think I'm gonna say, Dr. Benneker, thank you so much for joining us and rounding with us today on the Lab Medicine Rounds podcast. Oh, happy to, Dr. Kreuter. So we've been rounding with Dr. Benneker about coronavirus, getting the update about the uh, performance of laboratory testing. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this trending topic with us. Uh, be sure to check out the CDC and World Health Organization websites as primary resources as this continues to evolve. And thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to MCL Education at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.